and I just watched her breathe. It was like there was nobody else in the room, no other children, just the two of us. I couldn't believe that, you know, this little girl who was about four, I think, was fighting for every single breath when she had been abandoned by her family because she was disabled. She was, you know, she'd always been sick. She'd always been in that room in the orphanage. She'd never been outside. And yet she was still fighting for every single breath and lived in a society that saw her as worthless. And yet she still wanted one more breath, one more hour. And the sort of sharp contrast is everything in my life that I had, you know, that I have been blessed with, family, traveling the world, education. And I was ready to give it up. And we pro I probably breathed with her for a couple of minutes and then left the room. And I think it was the first time in a long time that I took a deep breath. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what now? Because her message to me was obviously to keep breathing. And that's when I, you know, that's when I found my reason to breathe. But it would take another four hours, five hours before I really figured out that it wasn't just about having a reason to breathe. It was about having someone help me do it. Because I had spent, I had spent sort of a concentrated four or five months planning how my life would end. I had 18 months living with my limiting beliefs, my poor negative chatter. And I really didn't know how to change it. But that was as far as I could get without asking for help. That's Sarah Ross, and I'm Brian Felchuk. This is Do A Day. You'll hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned. I'm your host, Brian Felchuk. I know we can all overcome and achieve because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers, welcome back to Do A Day. My guest today is Sarah Ross. Sarah is someone totally dedicated to helping people break out of the burnout cycle and the depression cycles that we find ourselves in so easily because she had to do it herself. And her message, her story to me is especially profound because she should not be here today as she will get into. She made a decision for January 31st, 2015 to be her last day on earth and did a lot of things and built a lot of things up to make that her reality. And in one of the last few days in the process of saying her goodbyes and closing up her life the way that she wanted to, she was taught a lesson, a very profound lesson from an unexpected source. And it ultimately is about the conscious decision, no matter what you face, no matter what you've come from, what you're going through, to still choose to breathe. Unbelievably powerful. I'm so thankful that Sarah got that lesson there's uh, some tough moments in this episode, but it's profound and it's necessary and it's inspiring. And I hope that you enjoy it. So with that, let's get into this episode with Sarah Ross. Sarah Ross, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I don't usually get too much into the backstory of people before bringing them on, because I like to discover as the interview goes, which sometimes is a problem because I find myself kind of dumbfounded with the <laughs> how profound things are. 
but I got to watch your video of you telling a bit of your experience. And it was, I was going to say it's beautiful because um, it is, but it's also, you know, heart wrenching at the same time. And, and um, there's so many moments where I like your, your pain was so real. Um, it was, it was amazing. So I had to thank you for that. And of course, we'll talk through that whole story. Um, but I'd love for you to just give people an overview of what you do these days. What, what is, who is Sarah Ross right now? So I am based in Oxford in the UK, working with clients globally on recovering from burnout, managing stress, and really finding that purpose in their life. So I call it finding your reason to breathe, which will mm. be uh, apparent later on when we, when we talk a little bit further. But it's really about finding that thing that makes you want to get up in the morning, makes you want to breathe, makes you want to just continue every day and then building your life around the answer. Yeah. I love that notion of, of breathing versus, you know, I talk a lot about purpose and a lot of it is like for the sake of achieving something, you know, there's some big goal, but it's so, it's so much more basic than that. It's like, why am I even living? Like, why do I begin this day, put the goals aside? Cause that is a point a lot of us struggle with is I can't even go on. Like, it's just the basic of breathing. It's like, why are you even doing that? And your body will, you know, our bodies are trained to keep us alive. You know, they will breathe without, you know, we don't have to think about breathing. But there is a power to finding a reason to take just one more breath. Yeah. Take another one that, you know, can profoundly change somebody's life, but can also really give people, like you say, that purpose, that why, that makes every decision going forward just that little bit easier because mm. you know why you're doing it. So, all right. So another thing coming from that, if we don't have to think to breathe, there's so many things that we do without thinking. Yeah. And what, what if we thought about breathing, right? It's, it brings that mindfulness to it and a sense of, I love that. Um, you know, it's, you know, you tell people, you know, to calm down, take a deep breath. Or, you know, if you're feeling you've come out of a meeting and you're really like angry or, you know, you're just, you know, really sort of energized and maybe not always in a positive way, then take some deep breaths. And in those moments, we are thinking about the breath and in and out and just the effect of taking that breath on our on our bodies, on our, you know, on our general state but within a couple of minutes, we will be back to the body is subconsciously doing it. And we don't even think about that. We've, you know, that I've just taken a breath and so have yeah. you. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want, I want to get into your story because uh, it, it really did stop me in my tracks. And <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it's almost, it, this sounds wrong about something difficult, but it's almost too perfect when we start talking about breathing and that, having more mindfulness about the path we've been on and having to break that cycle and find something more purposeful and something more sustainable. Because I think a lot of us really are in a burnout state or approaching it, even, you know, especially right now where there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of disruption to the normal patterns and people are either crumbling in that, um, you know, feeling overwhelmed or maybe seeing it as sort of breaking out of the rubble and it's like it's an opportunity for a new path forward. Absolutely. And as we, you know, we're learning every day, you know, this new world that we live in, 
but the stress levels have increased for pretty much everybody in the last six months. And questions that we didn't previously think about, um, you know, we just over here in the UK, we, you know, the children have just gone back to school um, and pretty much guarantee that a year ago when children went back to school, no parent was thinking, are my children safe in the classroom? Will they catch something? You know, they'd all go, oh, well, within a couple of weeks, they'll have that, you know, they all get, they all get a cold as they come back to school, but not thinking that it could be something serious and, you know, the impact of, of that on everybody in the family, for instance. Right. That's what we live in now. You know, you know, people worrying about, is their office clean? You know, I remember going into a, you know, into a corporate office and, you know, complaining when they hadn't wiped my desk down, you know, because the day before I'd spilt my coffee or or something Mm. like that. But I would never have thought about it from a, is this a sterile environment or is this deep cleaned so that I'm safe at my desk? Yeah. Yeah. It may not look nice, but that wasn't, (laughs) that's totally different. so take us through this point where you were, you were building the burnout and yeah. But yeah. So I, I don't want to give too much away about it. I want to let you walk through it because yeah. you, you do tell it really powerfully. So I was the, uh, I call it, I was a corporate junkie. Um, I chased every pay rise, title, promotion. And if I wasn't getting it with one company, I would switch to another company to get you know, what I felt was the next step for me. And, you know, as those titles grow and the bank balance grows, you, you know, you take on more and more stress, you take on more and more responsibility. And I was, I was at the kind of peak of it. I was looking after 50 different countries as chief compliance officer for a pharmaceutical company, you know, every day dealing with ethics, compliance, you know, what's right, what's wrong. And, I was traveling a lot. You know, I was traveling 85% of the time. I spent more time on a plane than I did in some of the places that I went to visit. And my body started, you know, it was giving me signs very early on into that role that I needed to eat properly. I needed to exercise. Um, and for me, those were coming as migraines. Yeah, It would start with like, you know, one every couple of months and then we'd be at one a month than one every two months. And as it got to, you know, got to the point that I was, you know, I'd been in this job for like three years. And if anyone's ever seen the, you know, the film Up in the Air with George Clooney, I was hitting those status levels with the airlines. You know, I was personally greeted by the pilot on planes because I traveled probably more than the pilot had. And my Instagram would have reflected the lifestyle, you know, business class lounge. Here's the board of where I'm flying to this week. You know, from the outside world, this was, this was fantastic. Yeah. I would get home on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and I would be flying again on Monday. And I would be so tired that I just wouldn't interact with my friends, my family. So I was to some extent, you know, isolating in a similar way than we have been for the last few months during COVID. I don't, I don't think a lot of people who don't travel that excessively fully understand because, you know, what travel have they done? It's been vacation, right? Or for something nice, like it, it probably is like, Ooh, that sounds lovely. Or, you know, you get all these upgrades and that, 
it's when you're doing it that regularly. And I was, I was similar. I was traveling every week for years, um, you know, multiple planes, multiple mm-hmm. destinations. It, it wears on you tremendously for so many different reasons. And that status is, it, it, it's like you have more points than you'll ever use because you, you never have time to use them because you're always traveling for work and earning them back faster than you could spend them. And the last thing you'd want to do probably is get on another plane. Exactly. <laughs> it's and, and yeah, some of the destinations are lovely, but some of them aren't. And what good is it to go to an amazing place and just be either in an office, a hotel or the airport and never have time for anything? I spent two weeks in London and never ate a single meal in a restaurant, including even a restaurant at the airport. Like it's not, it's not what we think it is. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, it's that Instagram life, you know, you, you post the highlights of what you see. I mean, I was in Guatemala for two days. Now that's a 24 hour journey from the UK by the time you've yeah, yeah. planes and everything. Um, I was there for two days and then I flew back and I didn't realize that Guatemala had temples and jungle and all of this. It's got a paradise side to it. Yeah. But I didn't know that until I saw the postcards at the airport. You know, because from my window, I saw, well, yeah, I saw what you would normally see in a city. Oh. All right. So for anyone who was like, oh, she's complaining for no reason. She's got it good. <laughs> yeah. It was, you know those that status is hard earned yeah and you know you're not eating what you choose to eat you know everyone who's been on a plane and been offered a meal you know that that food is you know it's optimized for you being thirty-five thousand feet in the air you're spending hours in a metal tube um and it's it then does to your body you know i didn't sleep properly i didn't exercise i didn't have time to you know, catch my breath before I would get on the next plane and then throw in that I was, you know, I was going from Asia one week to Latin America the next week. And my body really didn't know what time zone it was in. So, you know, I might be awake at four o'clock in the morning, but I would be like really awake. Yeah. This wasn't just like, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, I can't get back to sleep. This was like, I am full on awake. I can do my ironing. I could really go and do the shopping now, but there's nothing open. Right. Um, so I'm going to try and go back to sleep and you, and you don't because your body's going, but it's daytime, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. It is in Vietnam or it is in uh, Guatemala or something like this. And I knew that it was becoming too much. And my partner was in a completely different job, but he was getting stressed. Mm. I couldn't see the signals in my own body, you know, with the migraines and the the cold that I would get every time it was vacation. Mm. I see the symptoms in him. You know, he was getting up in the morning and and vomiting because he didn't want to go to work. He was so And so I left the dream job. You know, even though it was tough, it was still my, you know, it was my dream job. Yeah. I left it to take a desk job so that I could support him. And four months after I took that, he actually left me. And so, you know, I've left my dream job. I hate my new job. Uh, I'm not traveling anymore, which had given me a lot of pleasure. Um, My body is still recovering from three and a half years of continually being on the go. 
my health is, you know, I'm getting these symptoms and now I'm grieving the loss of a relationship. Yeah. And, you know, we all have those times where work gets a little bit busy and we're expected to work longer hours. But this work became my sanctuary because it was the only place I didn't have to make any decisions. My boss would tell me what to do. I would just, you know, every month the report would be due. These are things I didn't have to think about. And so it became very easy to suddenly be doing 70, 80 hour weeks. Mm -hmm. Because it also meant I didn't have to go home to an empty apartment. So, you know, I might be the only one in the office, but it was my house and it wasn't my bedroom um, that I was alone in. How how clear was that to you or how much was it just you just did it and the reasoning was sort of under the surface, but you couldn't bear to actually face it? Um, like, did you know? Were you I, making those choices? Like, uh, yeah, I'm going to stay because I don't want to do that. Or it's just like, oh, more to do. I was more, oh, I'll just give it another hour or so. And I was, you know, I was doing all that justification. Well, if I leave here at 8, I can be home at 8.30, have something quick to eat. And then I'll be in bed by 10, yeah. which would then be, I wouldn't leave the office until 10. I wouldn't be in bed before midnight. Um, and I wasn't sleeping. Like I was getting one or two hours a night. No. So it didn't really matter if I got to bed at midnight or at two o'clock in the morning, because I wasn't really going to get a good it night. It didn't matter. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'll stop interrupting. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I'm just curious. Okay. But I think we do you know, it's, it wasn't the pieces around the choices that I was making, but it was how I felt about myself. So I was, you know, I was really struggling with, you know, the relationship had broken down. Uh, nobody would love me. I wouldn't somebody else. I would always be on my own. Um, everybody around me seemed to be in couples and having babies so then I start to isolate myself socially because I just don't want to have to answer those questions. And after a while, when you continually say no to people, they stop asking mm -hmm. because they're embarrassed because you're never going to say yes, but they don't want to embarrass you because they know you're going to say no. But you kind of go through that, well, um, let me check my diary and um, I'll get back to you. And like, they know you're going to say no but you kind of do this little dance with each other so that you don't just go, no, thank you. I don't want to come to your birthday party or, you know, you're, you're still being polite to each other. Yeah. And I think that inner chatter had grown considerably. That's what I was very much aware of. If I have something to concentrate on in the office, yeah. then internal chatter of I'm not good enough. I'm disappointing people. Um, I failed at my relationship. I failed because I'm no longer doing that job I loved. I know that the people that I used to work with are struggling, you know, all these different things, many of which were not in my control. Yeah. But it, that was, that was what was kind of pushing me to find options where I didn't have to think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you don't have to listen to the chatter, distract yourself from it. Mm -hmm. Were you still getting the migraines at this point? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're in a better state, even though you're not traveling in the same way, but were you still getting migraines and some of the other symptoms of the burnout? Yeah. So my migraines, um, my triggers are not drinking enough water and not getting enough sleep. Yeah. And those had always been the triggers for me. 
And then of course you throw stress into it and suddenly all those factors kind of almost magnified. Um, so the, the migraines were getting worse and worse. And by the end of, by the end of 2013, uh, beginning of 2014, they were at 25, 26 days a month. Yeah. Wow. So I wanted to be working a 78 hour week so that I could shut the inner chatter off. My body was saying absolutely no. And I was spending 25, 26 days a month in my bed. Yeah. Just willing the pain to be away. And of course, when you're in a room and you can't see properly um, and you just want the pain to stop, that's when your inner chatter decides to go on full blast. Yeah. Wow. So how do you break this cycle? Because it's not... It's just not sustainable. It's not livable. Obviously, it's not enjoyable, but I think it's also common. I think there's a lot of people who are just like, this is what my life is. Yeah. And, you know, I get paid at the end of every month. And so yeah. I just put up with it because I don't want to be seen as not being a team player right. or not pulling my weight. Um, and I eventually took a severance package from my job because I just needed time. Um, my neurologist had actually said, you need time to stop wow. and, and reset. And he was the first person that called it burnout. I was just, I just said that I was, you know, stressed and tired. Yeah. And he, he, you know, very much said, no, I think you are completely burnt out. You need to, you need to, first of all, take four weeks where you don't talk to anyone from work. And I lived in a country where that was the case. If you were signed off sick, your work were not actually allowed to contact you. Um, and in that time, decided that the situation wasn't going to improve any when I went back, even if that four weeks was long enough to reset, you know, four years worth of, you know, ill-treating my body and not listening to the signs it gave me. Yeah. And so then, of course, you take the severance package and that little voice that said you weren't good enough or that you were a failure is suddenly like, you've just lost your job. Mm. You really are a failure. You really are not good at this. Yeah. And yeah, I got to my 37th birthday and decided that, you know, there was not much point to seeing my 38th because of all of these, you know, limiting beliefs that were going on in my head, this internal chatter and the pain that just would not stop with the migraines. Oh. You know, and it's, you know, there might be people watching this and say, well, I don't get migraines, so maybe it's not the same. It's like, it can be anything it's how your body catches your attention. So, you know, maybe it's that stomach upset, you know, you feel like you've got a stomach upset every day or you get a cold and it just will not go away. That cough that is always there, that pain in your shoulder that it just will not go. Even if you stretch or see the physio, it's just always coming back. They're all signs that your body is saying you need to stop and take a look at you know, what's going on, mine just happened to manifest as migraines. It's a fairly intense thing to have to deal with for like for all the things for it to manifest as that's a, it's, it's like it comes from your life being too much for your body to begin with. And then for people who haven't had a migraine, it's just utterly debilitating. And it makes the idea, I mean, you talk, we were talking about the reason to breathe migraines make it you just want to stop everything like to yeah. live through that it's it's just such a debilitating pain in your in your brain yeah and it you know mine would affect my sight mm. i would slur my speech 
you know, it was a really not, you know, if I didn't vomit during an, you know, an episode, then it was, I always said, that's a good migraine when you don't vomit. Um, but it's, it was, it's quite a bar to set, right? Yeah, it really is. You know, I would, I would finish one and maybe have 24 hours before the next one would yeah. start. Oh. So I decide that I'm done. You know, I see no reason to continue life. Um, but I know there are a lot of, you know, my, my brother lived overseas at the time. I had a lot of friends that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I'd left the seven, you know, I'd left my job with the chunk yeah. company. So it, was, it wasn't a case of, you know, I decided on Tuesday that I was going to end my life on Friday. Mm-hmm. They chose a date six months in the future and decided that for those six months, I was going to do, you know, the things that I had always wanted to do, places I had gone, wanted to see, but I was going to go and say my goodbyes. Not that anybody would know that that's what I was doing, but I felt that, you know, there were certain people I still needed to say goodbye to. I find that the six-month piece really struck me. Um, Just this notion of, most of us don't know when our life will end. And I, I don't know because I'm not one of them, but when you take your life to plan it out and to have that out in front of you, I, I can't imagine that's terribly common for that much time. You know, maybe it's like, mm. I'm going to do this tomorrow or I need to get these things in place so I can do this next week or, you know, whatever. But six months, I can't imagine living with that. It feels like a tremendous weight. Maybe it felt freeing to you. How did so you process maybe, that? For me, once I made the decision, yeah, it was freeing because I suddenly had, well, I mean, I then had things to do. You know, I had my my affairs to bring in order. Um, I had trips to plan. I had visits to plan to people. Um, I was, you know, I had in this, you know, in that time shortly after I'd left the corporate world, I had gone to Vietnam to an orphanage and done a two-week volunteer placement. And I had found a place where I actually felt at peace. And I had not had that feeling for so very long that I knew that that's where I wanted to finish. Mm. And so, of course, you have to put, you know, you're putting all that in place. But I was also very aware that I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing. Sure. Or or how bad things were. I didn't want anyone to know I was struggling. I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to be disappointed because I had lost my job or, you know, I I hadn't got a new job to go to. And so I was putting up, you know, I was putting up an alibi, shall we say, um, that nobody would guess what was going on in my head, including training to be a speaker, um, building a website, having my speaker reel done, so all this video footage cut together for a business and a website that were never, ever going to be launched because I wasn't going to be here. Do you, So I got to ask about this how much of that was an alibi and how much of that was a piece of you still having one foot in? I would say for me, I just wanted to hide from everybody that I was struggling. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, this high performing executive and I probably hadn't been for a couple of years. Yeah. Want anybody to know that. Um, I was pretty committed to, well, I had chosen the date. I had planned how it was going to happen. 
I had everything in place for it to work. And there was, you know, I went to a speaker course to learn how to be more authentic on stage. And one of the tutors or one of the, you know, coaches that we had there was very intuitive. And he made like a couple of comments during the class that made me believe that he had guessed. And I, re- I couldn't get out of that class quick enough. That must have been really scary. That's, you know, because it was, it was more a case of, oh my goodness, he knows. Yeah. I don't want to be in this room because I don't want him to ask me outright if I am suicidal or yeah. if I have thoughts. But then, you know, I went on a road trip um, for a couple of days after that course. And I literally was driving along um, the highway out of LA sobbing because I believed that if he could see it, then maybe everybody could see it. And, you know, for literally days was like, oh my goodness, what if everybody knows what I'm planning? Oh, wow. Yeah. And of course you look around and everyone who looks at you, you think they're thinking something about it. Oh my goodness. They know. Maybe it's just written on my head, you know, almost like a label. Yeah. Um, But it just, it really just kept pushing me on to like, you know, I have this date, it's the 31st of January. I have a plan to lead up to that date and I'm not going to let anybody know. Like, I'm not going to tell anybody. Um, and if anybody asks me, I would, you know, by then I was pretty good at hiding just yeah. how things were. And so I got on the plane to go to Vietnam, which was where I was going to spend these last three months. And, you know, everything that's going on is my last It's my last plane ride. It's my last time to go through visa checks and immigration. And it's the last time I'm going to, you know, see certain people at the orphanage. And about a month into it, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be my last Christmas. So I think I'll be Santa Claus, you know. I'm in a country that doesn't celebrate Christmas. These children do not know who Santa Claus is. Um, have never experienced even the you know the legend of Santa Claus or what you know that means, but that's what I'm going to do on my last Christmas. I'm going to dress as Santa Claus. I'm going to give out sweets and hugs and you know all these different things. That's you know that's my plan. And I hadn't you know in the whole time that I had been there, I hadn't been able to buy like shorts and a t-shirt in the market because I'm pretty tall. Yeah. To the locals and suddenly I found a whole Santa outfit, wig, beard, the full costume. In a non-Christian country. In a non-Christian country. (laughs) And it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is what I'm meant to do. Um, And yeah, I spent the whole day as Santa Claus, handing out sweets and chocolates. You know, these these children, majority of whom are disabled, um, 180 of them. You know, somebody dressed up in a funny outfit is enough to kind of wake their imagination. And my beard was pulled and my beard was stolen at some point um, and then returned to me. You know, all these just things. But I think the biggest difference was I spent the whole day smiling. I spent the whole day happy, laughing. Oh. Done in months. I don't, you know... I don't rem- I didn't remember that kind of feeling to just be so in the moment that all you had to do was laugh and and hug a little a little child or give them a lollipop or or something like that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, 
they, you know, the staff came up and told us that one of the little girls was dying and wouldn't make it through the night. And so we should say our goodbyes. And so I had never met the little girl before, but I felt that I was supposed to go and say goodbye. So I head to a room, you know, room one in the orphanage. I'd never been in there before. And she's lying in a crib that she shares with like three or four other children. And I lean over the the side of the crib and, you know, I've still got my full beard on at this point. And she puts her hand up into my beard and I just watched her breathe. And it was like, there was nobody else in the room, no other children, just the two of us. And it's, you know, I couldn't believe that, you know, this little girl who was about four, I think, was fighting for every single breath when she had been abandoned by her family because she was disabled. She was, you know, she'd always been sick. She'd always been in that room in the orphanage. She'd never been outside. And yet she was still fighting for every single breath and lived in a society that saw her as worthless. Yeah. And yet she still wanted one more breath, one more hour. And the sort of sharp contrast is everything in my life that I had, you know, that I have been blessed with, family, traveling the world, education. And I was ready to give it up. Mm. And we pro- I probably breathed with her for a couple of minutes and then left the room. And I think it was the first time in a long time that I took a deep breath. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what now? Yeah. Because her message to me was obviously to keep breathing. And that's when I, you know, that's when I found my reason to breathe. Hence, you know, what the company is now called and what I help other people to do. But it would take another four hours, five hours before I really figured out that it wasn't just about having a reason to breathe. It was about having someone help me do it. Mm. Because I had spent, I had spent sort of a concentrated four or five months planning how my life would end. I had 18 months, you know, with these migraines living with my limiting beliefs, my poor negative chatter. And I really didn't know how to change it. And even Einstein said, the thinking that gets you into a problem can't help you get to the solution. Yeah. And it was true. It was like, I walked out of that room was like, well, what now? But that was as far as I could get without asking for help. I'm curious the, at the moment, as you're like, how much did the idea of ending it, how much was that in your mind? Or was it even that whole day, you know, the joy that you felt in that day and then the clarity in the moment of watching and children can be such great teachers for Mm -hmm. us because they don't have so many of the burdens that adults have and so many of the constructs that frame our thought they have so much more freedom in their thinking even the notion of being deemed worthless by society that's not something kids tend to comprehend even though clearly she had been cast aside Um, how much was was ending it still present for you and active versus just taking in what sounds like a beautiful though you know also painful day i think i mean and i think that's 
probably, you know, the best way to describe it, it was a beautiful day in the human connection and interaction that I got to experience. Mm. It was painful only from the point of view that I knew that for some of those people, because, you know, there were some of the volunteers there that were still going to be there a month later when I would end my life. Um, Knowing that, you know, I think it became quite real that day around. That was probably the first time I actually thought about the impact on other people. But the beautiful thing about the whole day was really just, and and you mentioned it there, you know, society had deemed all those children worthless. And yet they were, in fact, no different to my nieces and nephew who, you know, loved chocolate, loved lollipops, would get incredibly excited with a lot of sugar inside them, um, but who would find the fun in, you know, pulling my beard or, you know, trying to, you know, open lollipops or, or things like this. And it was that very sort of childlike day that was actually probably part of the gift as well. Yeah. So what happens? Do you, do you sleep that night? Where do you take this feeling, this sense, and how does it start to, because obviously you didn't go through with your six month plan. Yeah. So are the wheels in mode, like what are the next moments and, and how do you move forward? How does this manifest? So I went back to the guest house that night and um, I had taken very little personal stuff with me to Vietnam because I knew I wasn't coming back. Um, and I only had one business card in my wallet and I had one book in my room. Um, which if you saw my wallet and my business, you know, my office now would be like, well, how, how could you live with just one, <laughs> one book? Um, and if you remember from, you know, me talking earlier about that coach who had been the intuitive one, it was actually his business card and his book. And I could remember him saying to me when I'd been in LA that he would make my dreams come true. He would make me, he would help me become an amazing speaker yeah. and help me. And, you know, because I never actually spoke to any of my friends and family about how bad things were, I never gave any of them the opportunity to help me. But in telling them the story, like a couple of years later, because it took a while before I was even ready to tell anybody what had been going on in my head. When I told them, most people said to me, I would have been there in five minutes. I would have been at your door. I would have sat on the phone. We would have come and collected you. You know, every single person said that they would have helped me if I had just opened up to them. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm sat in this room having, you know, a plan for my life, which at that point I believed had another five weeks to run. And I'm sat there with this business card from somebody I wasn't, you know, I didn't particularly like. Um, We hadn't had the greatest coaching session um, because I believed he could tell what I was thinking. And his book was called Stop Acting and Start Living, which was like, you know, 
push in the right direction. And inside the book, he'd actually written a note and it said, the bigger the dream, the better the life. Hmm. And I reached out to him. Um, I did not tell him what I had been planning yeah. or what the plan was. I just asked him to make make me the best speaker I could be. And I kind of saw it as that last moment. You know, even when you delete a file on your computer, you get the, are you sure box? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to delete this? Do you want to delete this? Yeah. File? Are you sure? <laughs> confirm, delete, you know, confirm or cancel. And I, I think that reaching out to him was that moment for me, was that if he came, if he came back and answered no, he couldn't help me, then I, you know, my plan was still in place. But if he came back and said that he could help me, then I would I would trust that that was my path and wherever that would then take me. Um, and he came back with yes. And we started working, I think, about a week or so later on getting me, yeah, back to being me and then to the point where I could help others in a similar place. So what are what are some of the things that you guys worked on or you talked about or maybe that gave you enough pause to to break that that path you had been on what were some of the you know the the things that really stood out as like changing your mindset about things and i'm also curious what happened to the migraines through this process yeah so like i said i did not tell him that i had been planning to take my own life yeah would take another six months before I would actually tell anybody that story. And it was actually in one of his classes that that story then came out. Mm. Uh, in that period, though, the very first things that he had had me do were connect with things that made, you know, that made me happy. So that day, you know, that Christmas day where I had spent most of the time smiling, uh, most of the time, you know, having a laugh or, you know, being happy, that was what he encouraged me to build into my life every single day. So, you know, the first weekend after we started working together, I went to a bookshop and suddenly, I, you know, I walked out with seven books. I started taking photos again. You know, my, uh, you know, my camera had been in my bag for months, um, but I started taking, I started taking photos again. I started to see sunrise or sunset I was walking more, you know, so all the things that actually my body needed for the, you know, our normal happy hormones to kick in were the things that I started doing in the, in the, in the next five weeks, almost up to that, almost up to the date that I had planned was that my body then started to work properly. Yeah. So the migraines actually disappeared within a couple of months because I was drinking I was hydrating properly. I was sleeping better. Yeah. I was getting exercise. I was being present. Um, all the things that, you know, our body does naturally if we treat it right. Yeah. Reduce the stress completely. Um, and I started also, you know, in going to his actual live in-person masterclasses, I was actually beginning to deal with, you know, those beliefs that I had. and sort of the baggage that I had been carrying that had actually led to getting to that place in the first place. So he pushed my, he pushed me out of my comfort zone a lot. Um, he had me dance. We had dance class every morning, uh, before, 
his class would start. Um, I was not particularly fit. Um, so those were a struggle. And then he had me sing on stage in Rome in a theatre, Let It Go from Frozen, because the lyrics were quite apt um, for my situation. Um, he then, you know, I then did stand-up comedy in London. Um, and then the whole story came out during a film festival in Italy where every single night our masterclass had we would have dance class, then we would have masterclass all day, and then we would be expected to be on the red carpet and attend a movie premiere in the evening. And, you know, Brian, I'm, I was not the girl who could even put her makeup on. <laughs> um, and learning how to get into spanks or, you know, <laughs> dresses and look presentable for a red carpet within like 30 minutes was just not, was something so far out of my comfort zone. But we did it, you know, six days in a row. Um, and I think because in that six months, the biggest lesson, you know, of all the things we worked on, the one thing that came out of it was that I started to dream again. Oh. Yeah, and you have to sleep to dream, so. You have to sleep to dream, <laughs> yeah. but my life also started to have a longer time frame to it so yeah. I was dreaming of a future I was dreaming about what was possible um I was dreaming about where the next master class would be uh planning the next trip going back to Vietnam um all these different things now in the corporate world there's not a lot of dreaming goes on you know there's there's planning yeah and you know, like I said, I was that corporate junkie always looking for the next title, next promotion, because it took me up the corporate ladder. But I wasn't dreaming about being head of a company or anything like that. But to be surrounded by, to be surrounded by actors and artists who are dreaming of winning an Oscar or writing a play or, you know, having a hit single and seeing what they would do to make their dreams come true was the rewiring that my brain needed in mm. order to really turn everything around. Yeah. Oh. What happened on the day that you had set as the last day? Because that came and went. So what was that day like? Were you? Were, I imagine you were aware of it because of all the focus you had before, but what does that day look like? <laughs> that day was the surrealist day I think ever. Um, I, because I wasn't planning to, you know, I was planning to leave Vietnam in a box. So I hadn't really looked at my visa. Mm -hmm. uh, and my visa would have actually have expired the day before that date. Um, and so I had, when I had decided that, you know, I was going to follow this different path, I actually prolonged my stay in Vietnam by another month because I wasn't ready to go back to normal world. Yeah. Going to stay in this, you know, in this bubble where I was making headway and I was changing and I was experiencing things um, again in a more positive way, but I needed a bit more time before I went back to such was a normal life. And so I actually had to go on a visa run um, and I headed to Cambodia. Mm. And the day that 
you know, the 31st of January, we were actually in the killing fields in Cambodia. Oh. Um, walking around, you know, basically the fields where people had been tortured and um, lives had ended. And we then went to a beautiful palace um, and saw, you know, where everything in the room is gold or encrusted with diamonds or things like this. And we finished the day at a restaurant that was um, completely staffed by blind people. Wow. Um, and the food was unbelievable. And I was on a I was on an organized trip, but I knew nobody on the trip. You know, one of those where you know fourteen people all want to do the same trip, and so you know we yeah. were sharing this experience, but I didn't really know any of them. And that's where I was, completely different country, experiencing something that I had never even imagined. That's really. I'm glad that you weren't back in the UK, back in the old setting, because that, that could have changed what the day could be. And yeah. if it's more of a, a celebration or something difficult to try to make it through. Um, but how profound that you went through these killing fields. It's almost like too perfect, uh, you know, not not in a good way, but, you know, it, yeah. it sounds like a script written for an amazing movie. Working on it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, and that, so that, it, that was January, 2015, January 31st for the next four years passed without incident. Um, it does, it's not a significant date. Um, I actually, you know, I'm more, I celebrate more at Christmas now than I probably ever used to. Do you still dress up? Um, I've been Santa Claus at the orphanage twice. That's since. great. That's great. Um, and, but this year, so 2020 was actually the five-year anniversary. And I was actually at a conference and it was about planning the next decade. Hmm. And on that very first morning, which was the 31st of January, 2020, we did a review of the last decade. Hmm. And... You know, I knew, and the, and I knew both of the hosts of the conference very well. They knew how significant the day was. Yeah. And actually, there was a couple of hours as we did this review that it was really tough. But that was the first time the date had had a significance for me. Isn't that interesting? So but the fish, next, yeah, yeah, yeah five years later, yeah. um, it felt like I was saying hello to the next decade rather than celebrating not having done something five years previously. And that was really important to me. That's a key shift. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the last two days, you know, so the fi final two days of that conference were about planning the next decade till 2030. And for me, that was, it was about looking forward yeah. and celebrating and really planning dreaming about what the next decade might have in store rather than celebrating that it was now five years since that date. Yeah. That's a, that's a real shift. That's the shift that lets you then move forward aside yeah. from just being here. That's beautiful. Sarah, this is, it's such a source of inspiration because, you know, not just the story, but I think so timely that 
this trap and the physical response to it, I think is unbelievably pervasive. Like people with forms of chronic illness, whether it's pain or other medical symptoms or just utter displeasure, if they pause to even reflect on what how they're living, um, or maybe just like giving into the unenjoyableness of the responsibilities that they've created around them. Um, I think that's how so many people live. And, you know, the hopes is it doesn't get to such an extreme state as the one that you faced. But in your story, I see such, um, such insight and hope that like, you know, we can catch this before it gets there. We can find a different way to go about things. So we have a reason to breathe. I, I, commend you for sharing your story and obviously it took some time to be as open with people about what was actually going on um but you're still here and people support you and you have friends and you enjoy your life so you can say something as extreme as that and people will stand by you i think that's really important for a lot of folks to remember yeah and i think what's you know for anyone who's listening who might feel even you know well, has resonated with something that we've said today. There's also that part of, you know, when I reached out for help, it was for somebody I didn't really know. You know, I had met Bernie for maybe a couple of hours at a conference and we'd had a conversation, but I wouldn't have called him a friend and I didn't, you know, he wasn't part of my family or anything like that. But it was that act of just reaching out and talking to somebody. And so, you know, it's, one of the things with, you know, it's just encouraging people, there are ways to reach out anonymously. You know, if you're feeling like I did that you're disappointing somebody or you don't want to tell people that you're struggling because they always see you as, you know, oh, she does so well and oh, she's achieving this stuff. And it's, you know, it's quite tough to then say, actually, I'm not, I'm I'm really not having a good time. And then, you know, there are numerous helplines and things that people can reach out to and speak to, you know, trained professionals um, or even just volunteer lines where you can actually just talk to somebody. Because I know from my experience that just that first conversation of saying I'm in a bad place was enough to shift it slightly. And then having, you know, conversations and going through coaching, um, and whilst I wasn't necessarily talking, you know, exactly to my issues, I was dealing with the things that were causing me the most pain. And I, you know, I didn't open up to anybody about the truth, about that date, about my story for another six months. That's when I first felt that I could actually tell that story. And then I realized that my reason to breathe was to help other people but it would be another year before I told my parents. Oh. I only told my parents because I had just done an interview that was going to go live. <laughs> and I didn't want them to hear it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a piece of that that's probably not such a bad thing, that forcing hand to you know, bring about something you probably should have done anyway. How, how did your parents respond? Um. I actually told my mum we I had taken her to the Adele concert in Barcelona. Wow. And as we walked, I realized through a couple of the songs that my mum reacted to that she had guessed there was something going on. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but she had always thought that it was just because of the relationship breaking up. Um, and so as we walked home that night, I actually told her the truth. Yeah. And it was a very peaceful conversation. You know, we had gone from being in a room with, I think, 20,000 people to just the two of us walking down a set of steps towards the apartment we were staying in. And to yeah. just that time and quiet to really explain to her what had been going on. Mm. You know, and I, you know, I've, I've, you know, I, I've heard it when, you know, when, when thing, when people have unfortunately taken their lives and people say, well, I didn't know because they seemed so happy and they were planning yeah. future. A lot of that is just, you know, that the person is so in their own pain and they just want the pain to stop. And it's yeah. not about dying. It's about stopping the pain. And unfortunately, you know, it's the ultimate way to stop pain is to die. Yeah. But in the conversations, you know, I was not thinking about my parents or my friends at all in my planning and in my, in putting it all together. Yeah. Well, in that whole, that like six months of alibi you were building, I, I've never, that would never cross my mind. That's so interesting. And so, you know, to look at someone and be like, oh, but they're doing this, but they're doing that. That doesn't mean they aren't struggling. That doesn't mean that they aren't facing serious pain that's making them contemplate something really profound that they're scared to tell you about. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's that question. There's a, there's a great organization in, in Australia um, that work under the hashtag of are you okay? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, it's just asking that question because we hide behind I'm fine or I'm okay. And it's actually allowing people, you know, when you get that feeling, you know, and this is speaking to anyone who's listening who thinks actually my friend or my, you know, my partner seems a little different is don't take I'm fine as being a definitive answer. Yeah. Just make, you know, just tell them that they are, you know, that you're there if they need to talk or, you know, maybe encourage them to do something that they've stopped doing that previously used to bring them a lot of happiness. Yeah. Reading or, you know, photography, you know, as it was in my case, because that can be enough to just break them out of that, you know, negative cycle. Yeah. Um, we, we could keep going on. This one thing that's striking <laughs> me though is like, it's, to me, it's not a surprise that you were engaged so completely in the act of giving back to others, that that was the context that helped you break out of it. That, you know, in setting yourself aside and just giving for people who, you know, on the outside, people would, would sort of write them off or completely write them off. Mm -hmm. Um, and connecting with them like that, it helped you see yourself in a different way. Maybe let your guard down. Oh, I, do, I don't think I had, you know, that day I, I was really just, I think part of me was creating a legend. Mm. The day Santa Claus came to a Vietnamese village. Oh. Um, you know, I arrived on a moped. <laughs> time we walked into the village. I had people handing me their babies. Um, so that they could take a picture with Santa Claus. You know, it was, you know, it was a pretty Alice in Wonderland type of day. Um, but like you said, it was it was enough to just, yeah, open the door slightly to a different way of doing it. Yeah, Sarah, this is um, 
that's really, you know, I've said it, I've said it before, it's beautiful, which is not the kind of thing you often would describe a story of someone planning to end their life, but it is a really beautiful and inspiring story. So thank you for sharing this and sharing it as openly and clearly as you have. Where can people dig into this more and learn about your work or connect with you? So easiest way to connect with me is we have a Facebook page called Your Reason to Breathe um, or website of the same name. So uh, yourreasontobreathe.com. Um, all the social media links are on there as well if people want to want to connect or they can contact me via the website. That's great. And I will, of course, link to that. And I'm just, I'm thankful, very thankful for getting to hear the story. And um, I've never been to Vietnam, but for some reason, I'm like picturing this place, picturing you standing there and what I imagine was not a very comfortable beard. Like I'm sensing that against my skin, <laughs> the fake beard. So just a testament to the power of your story and, and the way that you go about telling it. So thank you for sharing as you have. Thank you for having me. Are you ready to help me close the show out? I am. All right. Today is a new day. Go out, breathe, and do it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Brian. What a story. So powerful. So sad and beautiful at the same time, obviously. The struggle that that little girl was going through, um, you know, when, when Sarah took the lesson from her, it's heartbreaking. The pain that Sarah was living with for years, the way that her life was spiraling, not out of control, maybe almost too in control and too much towards this, this striving, this achievement place that wasn't in sync with who she is, is sad, is difficult. And it's inspiring too. And I'm sure it's super familiar to pretty much all of us. Maybe not our entire life, but maybe there are components of it. There are aspects of it. There are areas where we're pushing too hard and it's not in connection to our reason to breathe. And I love that final bit of uh, inspiration that Sarah took in those moments with that little girl as she processed it and thought about it, it's not just about discovering this for yourself. It's about the community you build around you and how you ask for help. Unbelievably beautiful. So thankful for Sarah to coming on the show and sharing her story with all of you. Really, really difficult journey, but so necessary. Do check out yourreasontobreathe.com to learn more about Sarah and connect with her um, social media, read her blog, all that kind of stuff. Um, she didn't even mention it, but she also has a book that you can get from her website. Um, it's called Activate Your Life. You can get it on Amazon. She links to it there. I will link to it in the show notes as well. But of course, take in everything that Sarah has to offer. And speaking of taking in books, have you read Do A Day? I know you're listening to this, and maybe it speaks to you. Hopefully it speaks to you. I know the book will even more. So make sure when you're picking up Activate Your Life by Sarah Ross, check out Do A Day as well. Just search for Do A Day or search for my name on Amazon. Or, of course, you can just go to doadaybook.com, and I link to it right there. I hope this has been helpful, uh, inspiring, maybe a bit of wake-up. Maybe this sparked you to think about why you breathe. And whether it's a conscious choice or maybe it's something you're just falling into and making it a conscious choice, could that change 
your path, your situation, the way you feel about how you're engaging with your life. Have an amazing day and make sure that no matter what is going on, you choose to breathe and choose to go out and do it. Thanks, everyone.